Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. We are busy with our values series. It's entitled DNA, Values We Live By. And this is our values as a church, right? So take a quick look around. Just look around the room. So that's the church. So who is the church? You are the church. Um, So who is the church? That's right. So these are your values. They are values we all want to live by, right? And they're practical, and they're day-to-day, and they're real. These are values embraced by the entire every nation global movement, right? And so, so far, we've spoken about spirit-empowered, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Who remembers Wayne Sanderman and that awesome, awesome evening as the Holy Spirit just poured himself out on us again? And the call to revival. Um, If you haven't read Wayne's uh, devotion, uh, Revival Rain, it's for 80 Rand in our bookshop, go and get it. I'm almost done with it and I'm so sad that it's coming to an end because it's been so motivational and so inspirational and kept revival in my my mind. Um, Keep praying for revival because the Lord wants to be with his people and he wants to bring salvation and he wants to bring in the harvest, right? There's a harvest for this house that God has ordained. And we're going to bring it in and we're going to disciple them. And then we spoke about lordship. Do you remember that? (laughs) A hard word, but a good word. And that's about relationship. Obeying God because we love him. Not because we have to. Because we want to and we get to, right? And then um, Pastor Simon, Pastor Roger spoke about evangelism. How awesome was that? And he, he just spoke such a beautiful word of encouragement to us about beautiful feet. Do you remember that? And when we bring good news to people, when we encourage people, when we bless people, when we just show some love to people, we have beautiful feet, regardless of what they look like in the physical. <laughs> because God is beautiful and he's amazing. And so tonight we're carrying on and we're talking about the value of leadership. Leadership. And we just disappeared completely. I am doing the wrong thing. Um, so the issue of Christian leadership is that it hits different. Not the way the world thinks it should be. Not the way we're being see, we've seen modeled in politics and stuff, right? It absolutely hits different. Let's see if we're... No, I'm afraid it's going to be your job back there to do it. Um, Matthew 4.19 says this, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And do you know that the most basic definition of a disciple is someone who follows Jesus? Are you following Jesus? (laughs) Some of you aren't sure. (laughs) Well, you're here tonight, so that's a good indication that you might be following Jesus. You're reading your Bible, you're trying to live by your Bible, you care what God thinks, you're concerned about how to please Him and to do what's right. 
That makes you a follower of Jesus. And the second you follow Jesus, you are his disciple. And the thing about following Jesus and about becoming a disciple is that it kind of makes you a leader already. You see, all of Jesus' original disciples became amazing leaders. They didn't start off like that. But when they started following Jesus, he began to teach them how to follow him. He discipled them. For three years, he spoke to them. He modeled who he was to them. He explained who God was and what God wanted and how to live um, a Christian life. And it was radical. These were traditional religious Jewish men. And Jesus shocked them all the time by what he said. All the time, Jesus modeled things that was so anti their whole idea of God and religion because it had become human-centered. It wasn't about God anymore. It was just about this is how we live. And so discipleship is all about learning how to live the way God wants us to live, not the way we think, not the way people tell us, but how Jesus models and tells us to live. And the reason they became excellent leaders in their own right is that they knew how to follow Jesus. And as they followed him, they took on his nature and his character over their own. And this is what happens when we become disciples. Remember when we were talking about lordship, we spoke about the fact that sanctification is a separate process that begins to happen after salvation. Remember that word sanctification, literally becoming a saint, (laughs) being made holy, and it's a continual process. And from the second you're born again, you learn how to come more and more under lordship. And so what is happening in sanctification? Your character is being formed. We talk a lot about character in Christianity, don't we? Um, Something I've realized is sometimes when things are going rough and I'm being forced and my character is being formed, I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, don't I have enough character yet? And what I've realized is the answer is always no. (laughs) Because life isn't stagnant. Every week, every month, every year, there are things that come my way that I've never had to deal with before. And so I need more character. I need more fortitude inside of myself, right? And this is the process of lordship. And all of you, there are a lot of young people in this room. Let's actually see who's under 30 today in the room. Okay, that's all we're going to (laughs) ask. Some of us are not sure. Um, Yeah, that's most of you in this room. And what that means is there are things you haven't yet experienced. There are some people sitting here who've got married, right? Who, Who figured out when you got married, your character suddenly needed a whole lot more work? Yeah, yeah. Some of you, there are a few parents in the room tonight. Who of you figured out that when your babies came along, suddenly your character needed a whole lot more work? And it's going to be like that for your whole life. That's a good thing. Forming character means we're growing, means we're actually engaging with our lives, means we're dealing with it. We're not just smoking weed and dropping out of society. We're actually engaging. We're actually engaging with what God has put before us. And we're growing. (laughs) Don't smoke weed. Um, And so leadership requires Christian character. 
You can't be a leader without it. And if you were with us in the suffering series, you know the scripture. Romans 5 verse 3 to 4 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Oh, Lord Jesus. Don't I have enough character? No. And then we come back here. And notice that we rejoice in our sufferings, not for them. <laughs> we don't have to go look for suffering. It will find us, right? Jesus is a prophet. In this world, you will have tribulation. He was absolutely right, right? So we don't need to make our own suffering. Let's not add to the suffering in the world, right? Whenever people tell me they've gone off sugar in their coffee, I always look at them very sadly and say, isn't there enough suffering in the world already? We, we, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We want character, and our character is solely dependent on that hope. Can you see that? Well, what is our hope? Eternity in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Now, we hope for wives and husbands and children and promotions and cars and all kinds of things. We hope for that. But that isn't what our hope is based on. The reason we have character is because of the hope of eternity. Because all we take with us is our character. We can come into heaven as a screaming, tantrum-throwing two-year-old, or we can enter heaven as mature sons and daughters. The difference is the kind of life we're going to live on earth. The difference is the kind of legacy we're going to leave behind us, right? And so we need Christian character. And do you know that Christian character is entirely our responsibility? Salvation is Jesus, totally. We can't do anything to save ourselves. But character is our responsibility because we have to make the choices. And remember, lordship was about submitting to Jesus. There's no commands, you must be saved. <laughs> do you want to be saved? He calls, he invites, he draws us, he gives us opportunity. He says, this is yours. But there are conditions and the condition is relationship with him. It's not your works. We have no holiness of our own. Us stopping smoking, praise the Lord. It's a good, healthy thing to do. It doesn't make you holy. Us not swearing. It's a good thing. It doesn't make you holy. Jesus makes us holy. He is our holiness because our lives are hidden in him, right? And so we, it's our choice whether we're going to submit or not. He will not force us. And in everything, in everything, it is our choice. Because freedom is radical. You can do whatever you want to do. That's freedom. You know the right, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. That's freedom. Before Jesus, you were going to sin regardless. You were either going to be self-righteous, trying to do it in your own state, or you were going to be depraved. And all of us were some weird mix of the two, right? <laughs> But regardless of what we were trying to do, we were going to sin. But now that you have Jesus living in your heart, you know right from wrong. That is literally the definition of freedom. It's not some weird magical blanket that visits us once we've read our Bible enough. 
It's the choices we make every second, every minute, every day. And the beauty is we make a lot of wrong choices, right? That's not what's beautiful. What's beautiful is that he comes and offers us a new start. That the second we realize we're out of line with him, we confess, we repent. And we don't start at the beginning. We, we just carry on. Because that's who he is. Because we can't do it ourselves. Philippians 2 verse 12 to 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Work out your own salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. Can you see that? We cannot work for salvation. By faith through grace. That is it. We have no, nothing to do with salvation. But once we are saved, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What I've just spoken about. Fear and trembling is, Lord, is this right? <laughs> is this the best? Is this good? Lord, I'm going to be honest with myself and say, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get as close to the line as possible, but I don't want to sin. <laughs> That's not fear and trembling. <laughs> Fear and trembling is, keep me very far from the lion, Lord. But it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's how we're going to choose to live our life. And, and what we need to do is to be submitting to lordship so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And we do this by forming Christian character. All of you in this room are pursuing Christian character. All of you are, and we're all going to grow. We get better. Josephine, we've been around a while. We get better, right? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but then you look back over your life and you realize, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm not perfect, but I am so much better than I was 30 years ago. You're going to have that story to tell. So if you've got Christian character, you've got what it takes to be a leader. Um, this next slide is a quote from Manfred E. Kober, and I put it up uh, when I preached on lordship. And it's, this quote says, it costs absolutely nothing to be a Christian. It costs everything to be a disciple. And this is the issue of Christian character. It's all about leading ourselves. Are you leading yourself? Because that's the first place of leadership you have to be standing in. And whether you want it or not, it is your responsibility. See, they, we, Jesus isn't a buffet. <laughs> we don't come to Jesus with, I like olives and feta cheese and milk tart. Yes. <laughs> but you can keep everything else. That's, <laughs> Jesus is a meal that is preset, and you either take it all or you take nothing, right? And so we have to lead ourselves. Well, how do we do that? By choosing to submit to Jesus, choosing to love him and then obey him out of that love. That means we are leading ourselves. Confessing and repenting our sin shows us that we are leading ourselves by not just living the way we want to. If there's habitual sin in your life, if there's a sin pattern in your life that's bothering you, keep bringing it to Jesus. Never make friends with it. Never just say, oh, this is how it's going to be. Keep Bringing it to Jesus. Bring it to people you trust. Go for counseling. Get help. But don't ever just say, oh, that's, that's how it is. Everybody does this. 
Confession and repentance means I agree with you, Lord. I don't agree. Don't justify things. Don't pretend like you're being a Christian when you know. <laughs> Just get honest with God. He already knows. Do you know nothing is shocking about you to God? Nothing. God is not surprised by you at all. Why? Because he knows everything. I shock myself all the time. I'm like, where did that come from? How could that possibly be me? God's like, mm -mm. <laughs> you know where that comes from. <laughs> Loving and forgiving others shows us that we are leading ourselves by aligning with God's value system. That people matter. That the way we treat people matter. That there's a lot of sin around the way we treat people in this world. Even the way we treat ourselves. And so these are things that we lead ourselves in. And when we are leading ourselves, we become eligible to lead others. First and foremost, to lead others to Christ, to show them how we have changed because of our relationship with Him, to model to them what an authentic and submitted Christian looks like. That it isn't perfect, <laughs> that we keep failing but that we keep submitting and choosing him over and over and over and over again. That is the Christian life. That is the process of sanctification. You will fail. Sorry, that's not highly motivational, right? But what is motivational is the second you fail, there's an opportunity to make right with Jesus because of who he is. He is our eternal hope. That is why we endure. We lead others by testify, testifying to all the awesome and amazing and wonderful things His goodness works for us in this journey. You have a testimony. You have a story of the goodness of God. If you're not sure, go and sit tonight and think about it and jot some stuff down. That time God came through you. That time somebody prayed for me. That time somebody prophesied over me. That time I got money and I didn't even ask. That's God's goodness. You have a story. And so because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can influence the world for him. Praying for people, sharing your testimony, caring for people, that's how you're going to influence this world for God. Because you are a disciple, you carry his DNA. His values are now your values. His desire is now your desire. Not just in the church, but in every single sphere of society. And, and one of the definitions for leadership is influence. If you can influence somebody, you're leading them. What is influence? They're listening to you. They're watching you. Influences is such a thing right now, right? <laughs> and that is a kind of leadership. If somebody looks so cool that you want to buy their makeup, their handbag, dress like them, that's a kind of influence. And there might not be anything wrong with that, but they're way better <laughs> places to influence people in. If you're making money off it, keep going. But also, let's be better. Let's not just make it about how we look or how we feel. Let's make it about, are we dealing with our stuff, right? And that is how we influence. Because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can influence this world. Look at somebody next to you. 
Tell them you are a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> so, I think Josephine will remember this. Help Nakar days. Um, for, for many a year, every, what we were called His People Johannesburg back then, uh, our venue was Help Nakar School Hall in Bramfontein. Um, uh, uh, I believe it's a girls' private school now. And... Um, we were there for many, many years. <laughs> and uh, one, of the, one of the things we did to like build community was every, every connect group had to, whether you didn't sign up, you were put on a roster to serve tea. And then the administrator would send it to you. And on that Sunday, you all had to arrive early, set up the urn, set up all the crockery, and then make sure the kettle was, all the stuff was boiled and done. And then when people came out of the service, we served tea. And I'm going to be honest, as a connect group leader, it was my worst nightmare ever to get your, your 12 people to actually rock up to do it. And then, you know, the senior pastors just had an expectation that you were magically going to make it happen. And if there were only three of you, then the three of you served tea and you worked hard, right? And honestly, I hated it. I really did. Josephine's laughing because she was probably did as well. Um, it was not fun. But this is the beauty of Christian service. This is how Christian leadership hits different. Because I'm so panicked. And like when I get in those spaces, if I know somebody's expecting something from me, I can get all panicked and anxious and weird, right? The Lord has built Christian character in me. It doesn't happen quite as much. But in those days, it was all about performance, right? And um, we were serving tea. And as much as I hated it, I began to realize something that was happening. That as I began to serve tea, the natural gifting, purpose, the stuff God put in me started coming out. Because as I was giving tea, people would start talking to me. And I'd talk back. As I was serving tea, I could see who was upset, who needed some help. And I would come out and say, listen, when we're done here, can I pray for you? Can I chat to you? I started realizing I have a pastoral gift. A true pastoral gift, which is just to care for people. We call past leaders pastors, but they have all kinds of different gifts. But a true pastor sees people and he cares about people. I started realizing there was a gift of encouragement in me. I started realizing I could hold really difficult spaces that other people couldn't. I started realizing there was a prophetic gift inside of me. From serving tea. Because tea was just a vehicle. Tea was just a vehicle. And this is Christian service, to make yourself available to people, to let what God has put in you naturally, to serve it out. And as I said, I want to just make this point, that we don't just influence in the church, we influence in the whole world. And there's a lie out there that full-time ministry is the highest objective and the highest way you can serve God. Rubbish. The highest way you can serve God is to be what he made you to be. The highest way you can serve God is to be in the sphere he has given you passion and talent and gifting and opportunity to. If you are called to entertainment, that is the highest sphere you will serve in. And I talk to young people all the time, oh, I want to be in full-time ministry, but I'm drawn here. And, I, and they're crying. And I'm like, no, you know your purpose. Go there. Make sure you are a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Make sure you are not trying to build your own kingdom. When you go there, you will find Jesus. Whatever your sphere is, 
finances, politics, science. Yes, maybe church, kids, education. If you've got a passion for it, if you care about it, if it's burning inside of you, it's because God put it there. It is your highest call. Go for it. Bring all that Christian character to bear and change that round for Jesus. Because there is, a, there is a mission field for you right there. There is a harvest waiting for you there that me as a full-time minister will never, ever, ever have access to. It's not my job. It's your job. Do you get that? Yes. You're not going to be weird about full-time ministry. If you are called to full-time ministry, praise the Lord. Come and talk to me. If you're not, praise the Lord and get on with what you should do. At the same time, we do bring our gifts to serve in the house of God. But that's part-time, right? And so this takes us into the kind of leadership that Jesus modeled. That slap's very different. Mark 10, 42 to 45, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and who would ever be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is a servant of all, and that is what gave him his authority. We're watching leadership be modeled where it's selfish and self-centered, where it draws people into treason and to criminal activity. We're watching that all over the world. There is no authority in that. That is just the abusive use of power. Christian leaders serve. Isaiah prophesied, he said, a child shall lead them. That word can also be servant. A servant shall lead them. And if you want to reach your sphere, serve. Because the world doesn't understand it. They don't understand encouragement and they don't understand service. Just care enough to do something for them. <laughs> they won't know what to do with that. But they'll remember you. They'll come and ask. And he has the issue of service. Do you remember that moment when Jesus is baptized in water, right? And we have that beautiful picture of the Trinity all together. There's Jesus coming up out of the water. A dove descends on him. Who's that? And a voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Who was that? The full trinity manifest in one moment. You see, Jesus was fully human and fully God. And what's happening there in that baptism moment, he didn't need to get baptized. He didn't have to repent from sin, right? Because he was perfect. But he had to get baptized because we, we needed to be. But in that moment, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the beginning of his three-year ministry. Before that, he was the Son of God. And we see things happening, right? But until that moment... He isn't set apart for service. And so what happened in that moment? The Holy Spirit came on him. And because Jesus was a human fully submitted to the Holy Spirit, he got every single gift at once. <laughs> every spiritual gift, every motivational gift, every service gift manifested on him. And we watch him move in every one of them, right? 
And so Jesus received gifts that set him apart for ministry. Now think about you. Do you realize the same thing has happened to you? You have been gifted to serve. I'm preaching myself warm. (laughs) You have been gifted for service. God has gifted every single one of us with more gifts than we will ever express in one lifetime. And some of you have so many gifts, it's confusing, right? And so we're only going to live, your generation most probably will make it to 100 healthily, the way medical science is going, as long as things don't become completely unaffordable. You might well make it to 100. But that's limited. And so you have to choose. You can't do everything. So you're going to have to choose. But God has gifted you, and that gift is for service. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, it's the list of spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the nine gifts of the Spirit. But Paul is talking about them, and he says this. He says, the gifts are given for the common good. They're not just for our benefit. In fact, we shouldn't be benefiting from them. I mean, if you can monetize, go for it. But the point is it's for the common good, right? (laughs) I'll leave that to you. But make sure there's common good. It's my gift manifests in the context of the next person I meet. So my prophetic gift, that chair needs no prophecy. It's a chair. It will always be a chair. It will not be anything but a chair. The day it stops being a chair, it's useless and it must be thrown away. But people have potential. People have possibilities. Like I said, people grow in character. So who do I prophesy? To people, to the common good, to the strengthening of the body, right? And so the gifts are given so we can glorify God and so we can serve and bless and help each other and anyone else we come into contact with. And Pastor Carol Gosman, who wrote um, the Hearing God's Voice Manual, she says this about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. She says, the gifts are God's love in action. And so, in fact, you are gifted to show God's love to the world. And that's not just spiritual gifts. Whether it's prophecy or hospitality or compassion or accountancy or baking or wisdom or healing or intercession, God wants you to use your gift to serve and influence and lead others through it. Right? And so Acts 2 verse 17 to 18 says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. By a quick show of hands, no shame, who has prophesied in this room over somebody else? Put it up high. Yes. Now look, can you see they're men and women? They're daughters and sons, right? It's for everybody. It's absolutely for everybody. And Peter is quoting uh, from Joel 2, verse 28 and 29. And by this stage, it's an ancient prophecy. And Joel was in a highly patriarchal society that didn't think women had a whole lot of value. But when the voice of the Lord came to him, he could only speak what the Lord told him. And what does he tell him? Sons and daughters 
on my servants, men and women. So look around this room again tonight. Can you see the disciples around you? Can you see the women amongst you and the men amongst you? Every one of them is disciples. Now look again. Everyone is a servant. Who does he pour his spirit out on? His servants, men and women. You are all gifted. God has gifted you for service. Acts 1 verse 14 says this. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so this is why Peter is talking about this prophecy because he's just watched it being fulfilled. He's just watched it happen. They were sitting in that upper room waiting because Jesus said, wait until I pour out my spirit upon you, wait. And they did that. But can you see it was men and women? And I love how specific it is. It's them with the woman. And then Mary, Jesus' mother, and then Jesus' brothers, James and Jude and the other possible six of them. I can't remember all their names. They're all sitting there waiting. And all of them, the woman included, get a tongues of fire on their head. They hear a rushing wind. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. And they all begin speaking in other tongues, right? Acts 2 verse 4 to 6. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. In fact, what was happening was they were speaking known languages of the people from all of those nations and they were praising God. In those languages, what were they doing? Proclaiming God. Was it just the men? Were the women proclaiming God in tongues? Absolutely. And so what is obvious here is that women prayed out loud together with men in the upper room. They were not praying silently. Women received the Spirit directly from God, not men. What do I mean by that? God didn't give the Holy Spirit to man and then women had to come to man to get the Holy Spirit. It all happened with everybody like that. Women preached the gospel in other tongues to men and women. Women are specifically included in the Pentecost outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a fulfillment of prophecy. My sons and daughters. And there it's happening in the street. Women have the same spirit as men and be, can be as greatly anointed as men. I mean, yes, maybe more so. And so where we're going with this tonight <laughs> is Christian women in leadership. <laughs> and the Every Nation policy statement, and we have one, people, it's a global reality. Some countries are doing better than others. But every one of our churches in the world is, is moving into a space of helping their people understand what the Bible says about Christian women in leadership. And in this house, we support and encourage women in all areas of ministry. I was sad to hear that Jess was sick tonight, and not just because she's sick, but because we, have, we would have had two lady pastors sitting on our front row, ordained ministers of the gospel. 
One who ran, he was the senior pastor of the Muffet King congregation and discipled many campus students, led them to the Lord, taught them the gospel and discipled them, preached to them, taught them with actual words, right, Josephine? This is Pastor Josephine right here. Mighty woman of God. And Pastor Jesse is our youngest ordained pastor ever in this church because if you've ever been around Jesse, you can see the call on her life. And she has a dual call. She's called to the nation. She's called to politics and to, to international policy making. And she, she studied in Switzerland and, and actually attended the UN there, right, as part of her course. And she's working in that field right now. But she's also called to the church. And she is an ordained minister. And she headed up our um, discipleship uh, department for many years and, again, wrote um, wrote programs, wrote trainings, taught those trainings, and she preaches regularly. And she is a powerful and gifted woman of God. She is a pastor in her own right. And so we can't make a comprehensive biblical study tonight. I want to encourage you, Pastor Simon preached on this word um, this morning. So much of the scriptures and stuff we used are the same, but we, we've come from two different spaces, right? And Pastor Simon, he's much braver than I, so he went to some of those really... Um, uh, controversial scriptures, <laughs> which I am alluding to, but I highly encourage you to listen to his word because you're going to get a nice, full, robust picture of what our take is. Um, so I want to talk about God's heart for women leaders and how there is a consistent narrative throughout the Bible. But I want to say this, as I'm studying theology, um, I've realized that there's this thing we've tended to do in the past where we pull three scriptures from totally different contexts together, we mash them together, and then we say this is what God is saying. Josephine's doing something because she knows how, how right this is. It's just a big problem in the church. That is really bad theology. We, we take the full counsel of scripture first and foremost. Where is the first mention of something and how was it addressed? And how has it continued from there? We look at books in their context. Each book of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is happening in an historical context, in a cultural context, right? And so what happens in the Bible a lot is because it's being written to people who all think the same, they don't explain, <laughs> right? And so one of the biggest examples of this is where Paul um, in 1 Timothy 15 writes, a woman shall be saved through childbearing. Now Paul has written an entire opus day, a thesis on salvation. It's called the book of Romans. If you ever want to understand what salvation is, just spend time reading Romans. And in that book, he makes a most spectacular argument for what? Salvation is by faith through grace. That's it. Nothing else. So when in 2 Timothy he suddenly says that women shall be saved by childbearing, he cannot possibly be mean that as a woman delivers her baby, she receives salvation and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in her. She cannot possibly mean that. So what does he mean? There is a context that is unexplained. Simon actually deals with that context. And if you want to know what that means, go listen to his sermon because it's really good. So the point I'm making today and the argument I'm making today is that there really is God's heart for women leaders is consistent throughout the Old Testament into the New. Um, the first thing that is unique about the Bible as a religious text, as a scriptural text, is that the stories of women are included. 
The Bible talks so much about women, and it tells us about who they are, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what the struggles are. Hannah, the story of Hannah and Samuel, that is an exclusively woman problem, right? There is not another religious book that discusses that problem. The Bible, it's there. She's pouring her heart out to God, and he's answering her. There are so many stories, good and bad, right? Because there are some bad ladies in the Bible. <laughs> Jezebel. Yeah, you know. Uh, Delilah. Yeah, there's some bad ladies in the Bible. Um, but it talks about how the Lord also anointed them and used them to influence their world, made them disciples, made them servants, and made them leaders. And so these are some of the ones we're looking at. Um, Miriam, the prophetess. She is a prophetess. She is Moses' older sister, right? And uh, when they come through the Red Sea, we watch her prophetic gift begin to manifest. Uh, as they come out and they watch the sea close over the Egyptians, she picks up a tambourine and she leads all the women of Israel into this joyful dance and she prophesies to the future of Israel. She prophesies to the success of Israel and to who God is to Israel. Her and Aaron, her brother, and Moses, their baby brother, were, they led Israel together. Aaron was the high priest. Moses was also a prophet. But it's very clear they ruled together. They consulted together. How do we know that? Because at one point, um, Aaron and Miriam have an issue with Moses. And they have a talk, and they're not happy with Moses' decision. And they rally a, an opposing party. And then they come back and bring it. And the Lord strikes Miriam with leprosy, <laughs> which is also significant. It's not just God being a misogynist, because Aaron doesn't get it. <laughs> but what that's telling us is she was the ringleader. She was a leader. She's not being a good one at that particular moment, but she was obviously a leader. And she was respected as one, and men and women followed her. Do you get that? Do you see that? The next one is Deborah. She was one of the, oh no, the next one is Rahab. What am I doing? Now, Rahab is particularly interesting. Do you remember the story of Jericho and the fall of Jericho? And Rahab is a temple prostitute. She's a priestess. She's a high priestess in one of the, the pagan temples there, but that means she's a temple prostitute, right? So she would have had, she had uh, individual income, which would have been unique for a woman, especially in that context, right? But she had some power. What's really interesting about Rahab, she's the only savvy one that understands what's going down. And she starts weighing up <laughs> her options here. <laughs> this woman is intelligent. <laughs> this woman knows stuff. And she decides uh, putting her lot in with the God of Israel is going to be much better for her and her family <laughs> than opposing them. And we know the story. The slaves come. She saves them. Her and her family are saved. And she marries Joshua, who's the, the, the commander at this point, right? Well, Joshua is one of the great-great-grandfathers of Jesus. So that makes Rahab, a pagan temple prostitute, becomes part of Jesus' lineage. Think about that as an influential woman. Um, I should have swapped those around. Then we have Deborah. So Deborah is a judge of Israel and a prophetess. And a judge was literally the ruler. The book of Judges is the judges stand before God for the people and they make every decision. She's basically the queen of Israel at this point, right? Um, now, there's often a traditional argument that 
Deborah, um, there were no men that God could use, and so God was forced to use a woman. Well, that's utter rubbish. For starters, there are three men in Deborah's life that are equally, if not possibly better than her <laughs> at, at administration and stuff, but she's a prophetess, and God wants her. And she is so influential that her, her commanding officer, Barack, do you wonder where Barack Obama got his name from? That was it. Powerful man, amazing man. He says to her, we're not going to go to war without you. You better come to war with us because if you don't come, the people won't come. She's the, she is leading. She is ruling. She makes a prophecy to him at this point, and it's really interesting. Uh, Judges 4 verse 9, she says, or the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. So that's JL. Do you know the story of JL? It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. She's a married woman, and uh, the king of Canaan, Sisera, who's, who who's doing the battling against Deborah, uh, they, they, he gets defeated. He runs away, and he runs to this tent. Her husband was actually one of his allies, um, but it was a bit sketchy, right? And she obviously didn't agree with him. And so he finds Jael in her tent, and she says, come in. And she covers him, and she gives him milk to make him sleepy. And I wonder if there aren't some things she added to that milk, because he asked for water, but she gave him milk. Um, and she puts a blanket over him. And once he's sleeping, she goes to get a tent peg and a hammer. And uh, Pastor Simon gave a different definition, but in the Bible it says she, beat, she hammered that thing so hard through his temple that it entered the ground. So Simon was saying that's actually his belly, which was interesting because this was the, the place of the soul. But in any case, whether it was his belly or his head, I loved that as a child. I loved how violent it was. I loved how crazy it was. I loved that it was a woman who just beat that thing into the ground. And, and she, is the re she brings victory to Israel, and she's recorded. And so Deborah and Jael, the Lord brings incredible victory. And Deborah was possibly the only truly righteous judge in the whole book of Judges. Um, then this one is so interesting. It's something I just discovered. It's Huldah. Her name is Huldah. Two kings and two chronicles. She was a prophetess and possibly a teacher. Um, what happened was this King Josiah sent a whole bunch of his leaders. So Israel and Judah had split as nations. Israel had fallen away completely from God, was doing idol worship. But because of that, because of their sin, they were being continually overrun by enemies. So they kept checking in with God to see if he wouldn't help them, right? So they come to Josiah, and Josiah says, go see the prophet Huldah. She's a married woman. She lives in Jerusalem at this time. <clears throat> and five men approach her. And she gives them a harsh word. She looks at the dudes from Israel. She says, you're all going to die. You're all going to exile. You'll never be seen again. <laughs> she says to the dudes from Judah, tell Josiah, because he has brought rev um, revival and because he is righteous, the Lord will bless him. There will be revival during his lifetime. He will live for so long. And after he dies, unfortunately, Judah will fall away. And and he, but he won't see it. The Lord will be gracious to you. It's actually all we know about her. But the reason Josiah is interested in Hilda is because he's, they've unearthed the, uh, the scrolls of the law. And because Judah had fallen into apostasy as well, they didn't understand how to interpret them. And so part of Hilda's context is that she might have been a rabbi. She might have been a teacher because they're actually, he's actually asking her, prophesy, how do we interpret this? Right? Think about that for a minute. Now, what really blew my mind about Hilda, guess who knows the other two prophets who were living in Jerusalem the same time as she was? Jeremiah and Zephaniah. 
that blew my mind. Josiah wasn't interested in those two. He was interested in Hilda, a woman prophet and teacher. Isn't that amazing? And then um, Abigail, we know as David's third wife, also a savvy woman. Her husband was going to get her killed, and she started making plans. <laughs> and she showed David that she was a hot commodity. And uh, true as Bob, David killed her husband and married her. But she actually prophesies to David, and she gives him counsel. She gives him wisdom. Um, the prophecy she made to him was, um, where is Abigail gone? Um, she says, the Lord, you, the, the, the Lord is going to give you an inheritance way past your life. And who is that? Jesus Christ, right? And then the last one, Esther. And we cannot underestimate this. Esther was just a normal woman. A beautiful woman. She wins a beauty contest, right? <laughs> Let's talk about influences today. <laughs> but she was Queen Esther. She became the, the queen of one of the greatest civilizations on earth. And she saved her entire nation. That's anointing. That's a woman that God is, uh, is using for amazing things. And then we come into the New Testament, and we see Jesus often spoke directly to women in public. This is so significant. Jewish men did not speak to women. If you go to Israel today and you watch the religious Jewish community, you will see all those men with the weird hats and the, the curly bits walk three steps in front of their wife. They do not talk to women in public today. I kept making mistakes where I would go and talk. I wanted to buy something and I would just talk to women and they'd all be like... <laughs> and eventually I realized, oh, okay, you don't talk to women in Jerusalem. But Jesus walked right up to women in public and just started having conversations with them, okay? So the disciples were astonished to see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And let's talk about that woman. She is basically an adulteress. She's had more than one husband, possibly a prostitute, right? She's coming to the well when nobody else is because they all reject her and they all hate her. She encounters Jesus. She suddenly realizes this is the Messiah. What is the first thing she does? She goes back to her city and says, come and see this man. She becomes an evangelist. She preaches the gospel to men and women. We see Jesus being so kind to the woman caught in adultery. He restores her dignity to the woman with the issue of blood. Why does Jesus call her out? Who touched me? Because he's about to tell the entire crowd who thinks she is unclean. They are both ceremonially unclean. Jesus speaking to them makes him ceremonially unclean. He doesn't care. He calls her out because he wants the whole community to hear what he's going to say to her. And what does he say to her? My daughter, your faith has made you whole. He just put her above all of those idiots who were judging her, right? But Jesus, in the woman of adultery, Jesus also calls his woman out for their sin. He does. He heals them. He delivers them. And then he says, go sin no more. He makes them responsible for their own relationship with God. He makes them responsible for their spiritual life. That is highly significant. That means he doesn't think they have to go through a husband. Can you see that? And then in Paul's writings, oh, oh the New Testament scholar Ben, ben Witherington III, imagine having a name like then, that Ben Witherington III says, Jesus broke with both biblical and rabbinic traditions that restricted women's roles in religious practices, and he rejected attempts to devalue the worth of a woman or her word of 
of witness. And then another theologian, um, uh, have I got her name here? Yes, Linda, Linda Belville says this, and this is from Paul's writings. Virtually every leadership role that names a man also names a woman. In fact, there are more women named as leaders in the New Testament than men. Go and look that up. You see, Linda Belville did the work. She went and studied this. And what did she discover? Phoebe is a deacon and a benefactor. She's from a church in St. Crea. We don't know about it more. It's from Romans 16, verse 1. Then Mary, the mother of John, Mark, Lydia, and Nympha were overseers of house churches. It, it, the phrase in, the, in her house is used with all three of these names. The church in her house. She is not making the tea. She's not setting up the chairs. Do you get that? Do you see that? She is running the house church, and all the churches were house churches then. She is the senior pastor of her church. Yodia and Syntyche are among the overseers and deacons at Philippi. <laughs> They're the two women that, that, <laughs> that Paul exposes and says, tell them to stop fighting. <laughs> because they leaders, and they're representing Jesus to their communities. Isn't that amazing? Um, it says, it says to, he says to them, they have struggled together in the gospel ministry. What is the gospel ministry? Preaching the word, right? The only role lacking specific female names is that of elder, but their male names are lacking as well. And then lastly, there's a woman called Junia, who was considered by Paul to be an apostle. Romans 16 verse 7 in the NIV says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Junia was an apostle. What also proves it is she went to prison. You don't go to prison for pouring tea and being welcoming at your door. Do you understand that? She preached the gospel, and that's what got her into jail, just like Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel. And some of the stuff I was reading this week just blew my mind, and I just want to mention it, is that part of Rome's backlash against Christianity at this time was their view of women. Roman women were attracted to becoming Christians because of the freedom it gave them. Because they were no longer just chattel or owned or property. Do you see how they lived different? They hit different in that culture. We've got to think about this with some common sense. And there's a lot of stuff coming out from all the archaeology and history. Guys, do you understand that we're studying more and more and more? And New, New Testament studies has become so serious because of the ancient fragments of the Bible that are absolutely provable right? That that's when they came from. They use those fragments to prove other documents and findings. And so what's coming to light about the culture of Rome at that time, about this period of history, because it was such a phenomenal period of growth, is that what the Bible says is true. And we can interpret it now within a much more understandable cultural context, historical context, right? It's always been there. Do you get that? And so hopefully you understand tonight that there is one cohesive, consistent narrative of God's heart for women leaders throughout the Bible that women can lead. If this is 
quite a difficult thing for you to understand, please come talk to us, and I can direct you to do more reading and to, to, to do things. But rather come and debate and ask questions than, you know, just don't agree. Amen.